0: We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, one of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. Well, to do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Aplos just might be the solution you're looking for. Aplos is made specifically for nonprofits to manage fund accounting, Donations and your people. So go to nonprofit.apples.com to see how it works and get your 15 day free trial. Many people have described this last year we've been in as a unique moment in American history, specifically when it comes to the issues of racial equality and social justice. However, these issues around racial equality and social justice are not new. But for many of us, this moment just feels different. Why? Well, my guest today believes there are two main reasons why this moment we are living in now feels differently. My guest is Kashana Palmer. She's the CEO of Kashana and Company and founder of the Rooted Collaborative. Kashana is a national speaker, trainer, and coach with a 17-year background in fundraising, marketing, and talent management. She began her first management role at age 22 and went fresh out of graduate school to managing a team of 12 and a million-dollar budget. She will cover a whole variety of issues today, ranging from diversity and inclusion to unique leadership challenges facing the nonprofit sector. Enjoy today's show. Thank you, Kishana, for being on the show today. So I wanted to start out by giving my listeners a chance to get to know you a bit, uh, hear more about your story. Could you give us just a quick overview of your story and specifically what motivated you to be so involved with the nonprofit sector and your passion to help nonprofit leaders?
1: So I got my start as a grant writer for a large local organization right after I left D school. I don't know what I was thinking, y'all. I went in as an investment banker and I came out and I said, there's gotta be more I can do with my life. (laughs) And so I found myself um, looking at organizations that had missions that I cared about and I knew I didn't want to work in programs, but I wanted to do something. And so I combined my love of money and my love of people and um, found my way to fundraising. I didn't even know that it was like a formal thing, but I've been raising money since I was a kid. And so it was just a natural transition for me to uh, start my career after grad school in the social sector. And so what got me like really excited and super pumped around leadership and around helping folks become better leaders is because I realized that There were lots of folks who were getting promoted, who were individual rock stars, who were high performers and high flyers, chasing after their fundraising goals or their marketing goals, um, their programmatic initiatives, expansion. But they sucked of when they moved into being people managers and just felt really clueless and out of sorts and just couldn't quite figure out how to get their sea legs. And there was so much information about what it takes to be a leader and what looking like what management should look like that I said, you know what, I've actually done this for a while. I've had the rare maybe experience of going pretty much straight from being a director to a chief executive, and that's where I spent the majority of my career, and so I brought a unique perspective to the table.
0: I love that. It's really interesting. You're right. Um, I've had people on the show talk about that same experience where just because you're an all-star in a certain area and you're just knocked out of the park in terms of fundraising or even, you know, inspiring others, but managing people and leading people, it's a whole different ballgame. And that can be really challenging if they're not trained. So good leaders have always been inspired by other good leaders. And I'd like to ask which leaders have most impacted you and in which way they've impacted you.
1: Yeah. So starting right at the house. Um, My dad is probably my biggest leadership inspiration. And I say that because, you know, he is the epitome of the everyday leader. That's the folks who may not necessarily have the big title. Um, They may not be running a company or an organization, but the way they show up at work in their role, the way they show up for their friends and their colleagues, the way they show up for their family, um, they are leading out with vision. They're inspiring people. They are leading with their values. And I think my dad, from very early on, just really demonstrated what it meant to be a person of integrity, to have your word be impeccable, uh, to really uh, be convicted um, in helping people and being good to people and being good to yourself. And so, you know, from very early days, I think my dad was first. And then as I got older, I started to be really inspired by women women. Um, mostly in the creative arts, because until I um, went to grad school, I really thought I was going to have a career um, in music. And so, you know, Cicely Tyson, who uh, just passed away, was a huge, huge influence um, because she just was excellent personified. Ruby Dee, another actress that, for me, um, just really demonstrated what it meant to take on really courageous roles and to step forward powerfully. Um, to make statements around advocacy and activism, and also to be really powerful in their craft. Um, and so, those are a couple of women who just really stand out to me. And then, as I got older, um, some of the women that I really, really admired, um, of course, Oprah. She's one of the, I think she's like on oh, everybody's superstar list.
0: <laughs> That's right. You're going to add your name to it. <laughs>
1: I know. Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. <laughs> but just the way she came to, you know, to be like the the, the relentlessness. Um, with which that she approached her career and um, her drive uh, despite adversity. I think that she, you know, is definitely somebody who I looked up to, who inspired others, inspired a lot of people um, to live their best life. And so those are, you know, I would say my four, my dad, and then those three women who really shaped a lot of how I govern myself today.
0: OK, well, you know, it's interesting. I've had several people on the show again talk about this, and it's no doubt about it. Starting last year after the George Floyd protests, um, there's no doubt that many people have called this moment, you know, that we're in right now as very unique in some ways uh, when it comes to racial justice, racial equity. I mean, it's been one of our major national conversations today. And so I'm curious with you and all your wonderful background, why is racial diversity and racial equity so important? And what are the biggest barriers, do you think, that keep nonprofit organizations from moving forward with this particular issue?
1: You know, I think that it's, it's something I wrestled with last year because um, this idea that this is a new moment to me felt sort of false. Because I, I remember saying to an audience once, I was like, y'all yeah, know I'm black, right? Like, I've been black my whole life. Um, and they chuckle, you know, kind of uneasy chuckle, like, Ooh, and I was like, no, but seriously, y'all, some of us are just looking at in this moment has been my day in day out existence for every breathing moment for as long as I can remember. Um, and I think what makes this particular time feel different is that our generations are approaching it differently, that younger professionals, younger folks are taking a different stance. And I think that lots of movements, particularly around justice and change, whether it's the women's movement, whether it was, you know, industrial revolution, whether it was any of our civil rights um, moments that have happened, um, particularly in the U.S., across U.S. history, have been fueled by young people. And so that's not unique. What I think is unique now is the speed that we are getting our information. And so because everything is on social media, because it can be recorded in, in real time, because um, narrative can be constructed by the, the person who is experiencing it and not retold by someone else, it just makes it really hard to ignore in the same way because it feels like a fire hose that's coming at you over and over and over again, um, as opposed to hearing about it one night at 11 and it's gone again the next morning for something more interesting, more, more you know, more salacious. Um, or something else. And so I think that that's for me what feels different, that it, that, that the information speed coupled with how this particular generation of young people, um, are approaching being heard and seen, I think makes it feel like a different, um, level of zeitgeist that we're, that we're getting behind looking at racial diversity and looking at racial equity as something that is a part of our story, um, and that we've got to be able to tell it. So that's the first thing.
0: I really appreciate your insight that it's it's kind of maybe the, you know, social media and just the ability to get quick information like you said in real time like right now and you're saying that the way this generation's responding is different. Maybe talk a little bit more about that like uh based on what you know from history, you know, how has it been different and why has it been different do you think with this generation versus the past?
1: So, you know, I think about when I was in college and I went to the million women's March Um, and that was a huge deal for me, my freshman year of college. And I remember, you know, we got on a bus and, you know, I forgot even how the caravan came together and we didn't know if other schools were going, but, you know, we, we had like some of the word on the street. I think um, instant messenger was, was pretty new then. Um, And we had to kind of like figure it out and feel our way to it. Well, my daughter who is in high school asked, me, which protests could she go to? And had already organized with her friends around what they were going to do at school, in social media, the conversations they were having with their older siblings, with their parents. And so it wasn't done sort of like in a clandestine way in secret. It was out loud. It was fast. It rapidly iterated. um, And it was designed for immediate impact and results. And I think that um, you know, there's still some work around longer term strategy and leadership that we'll need to see happen over time. And that comes with maturity as, as well. But I think what's markedly different is the genesis of the starting that young people from all different backgrounds are like, yeah, enough is enough. Also, we're going to get this, we're going to spread this in like 37 seconds because we can make this viral, um, through the different social media platforms that we have available to us to be able to do that. So I saw that in my own household. Um, in real time. And I had to get off my duff. You know, I'm already angry, but I'm also in meetings all day. And my daughter's like, yeah, yeah, I, I cleared this calendar because we're going to the protest at four. Here's your gear. It's at the door.
0: She manages your schedule. I love it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's one of the things that were different. The young know, people were just um, much more um, in your face, moving more quickly, not in the stealth of night um, around how they were uh, organizing and galvanizing support.
0: Excellent. And then you had a second thought there.
1: Yeah, the second thing that you asked me about, like how nonprofit organizations um, are responding to this moment, you know, it depends. I think folks are scared in the corner, you know, hugged with their hands around their knees, crying, you know, to some degree. And then I think there are other organizations and organizational leaders that are like, the heck with this nonsense. We are going to face this head on. Um, this is a part of our mission. And I think one of the big conversations that I've been a part of is if your organization does not explicitly say that it is about social justice, do you have a dog in the fight? And the reality is absolutely, because by design, our sector addresses societal ills, gaps, changes, problems, and we provide solutions. So whether you're thinking about environment or animals or babies or disease or education or reform or food, it doesn't matter what you're thinking about, The genesis of your mission is solving an injustice that is occurring. And so by that very definition, you are involved in social justice. And it doesn't matter what slice of the pie your organization or your institution finds itself cutting. There are folks, there are groups, there are folks who are a part of the most marginalized of whatever your mission is aiming to address. And so what that says is that each of us have a responsibility to actively participate because otherwise, what are we doing?
0: Well, one of the challenges for an effective nonprofit leader right now is getting the right information so you can make solid financial decisions to help your organization thrive. Well, to do this, you need the best accounting and donation software. Researching, learning, and maintaining software can get really costly. So let me save you some time and money. Applos just might be the solution you're looking for. Aplos is made specifically for nonprofits to manage fund accounting, donations, and your people. So go to nonprofit.applos.com to see how it works and get your 15-day free trial. Hey, everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to make sure you knew about how to get some more great content. When you go to our website, just look at the top right section of the homepage under the words subscribe. You can simply type in your email address and then you will be added to our monthly email update. In addition to getting great access to some superb content, you will get the latest podcast shows right to your inbox. Now, this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or content on this show. If you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email us. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Well, that is such a good point. And I'm really glad you mentioned it because I think it's one of those that as the nonprofit sector grows and I think a lot more people are looking to the nonprofit sector actually for leadership, particularly around racial equity and racial justice issues, we need to lead on this one. And we really need to step up and make this much more of a priority. So maybe... Let's go to that. With the emerging generations, you've brought up a couple of interesting points. Are you seeing a significant change with emerging generations when it comes to diversity and inclusion? You've already mentioned that they responded. Obviously, this generation responded to this moment differently. But how about when it actually comes to diversity and inclusion in leadership positions? And, and then maybe again give us a few more steps of what you've done with other nonprofits when you've inspired them, you've talked with them, You've I know you've worked with them. What are you recommending as the first step or the second step as to really prepare are these next leaders in these organizations to make the necessary changes to really improve their diversity and inclusion?
1: Absolutely. So for me is death to the task force that doesn't have any action is the first thing. And so the number of clients that I had Sean and Co we go in and do cultural audits and we look at um, organizational audits around teams and around team makeups et cetera. And one of the things that we have found, is that there's lots of good intentions, but my dad would say the road to hell is paved with good intentions um, around task force and thinking of policies um, and statements that we can make about how we view diversity, equity, inclusion, and access out in the world. But then if you talk to the employees, to the team members, they're like, yeah, that doesn't exist in our practices day to day. It doesn't exist in our processes day to day. And so how can we shift that? So one of the first things I talk to executive teams in particular about is examining your current practices, your policies, and your procedures, and really pressure testing them. Are they, in fact, equitable? Do they actually um, meet the lowest common denominator of your team members? If maybe, answer is no. If no, fix it. And so that's one of the things that I think is really critical. So the second thing is around addressing the pipeline for leadership. When you're thinking about your team members and who gets the plum assignment, who gets the stretch assignment, who is up for the promotion, who we have decided is worthy of this particular next leap, look at your organizational pattern in history. How many folks of color have you promoted? Has it been emblematic? Has it been representative? Um, Is Have you had folks of color and particularly black professionals leave your organization and they get replaced by white professionals? Are you tokenizing your South Asian and Southeast Asian employees? Like, you have to really kind of dig a little bit deeper, and that digging deeper is scary as heck because folks are like, I don't have time. But if you don't, then you're not actually setting your organization up. To shift and to change and to grow and to thrive with our changing times. Because more and more really qualified, super talented professionals are going to leave and go do their own thing, or they're going to go to organizations that are starting to signal that they are interested in growing a more diversified leadership pipeline. And it's not just about Having lots of folks of color who are really smart and come from great schools in your assistant level, associate level, analyst level, manager level, no. Who is in your senior director, your managing director, your VP, your EVP, your C-suite? If you are not seeing that stair step happening throughout the levels of your organization, your organizational chart, then my friends, you have good intentions, but you do not actually have an actionable strategy that is going to get you the kind of results you say you want, which makes me then say, do you really want it or do you just say you want it? So that's where, that's where I think it is, and that's what I advise folks to do, to really do that assessment. And not just thinking, you know, because, <laughs> you know, we love to think, um, but actually taking some, some steps.
0: What you're saying basically is that your actions speak louder than words, right? So if you, in particular, the management levels, at the very high levels of management, if there's not uh, diversity and more inclusion with the leadership represented there, you're saying that a lot of people are going to move on and they're not either going to even look at your organization.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, And here's the thing. Here's one more thing that I'm noticing right now. And so if you look at other points in our, let's just use economics, other points in our history as a sector. So look at the 08 um, economic crisis, for example. Look at when funding, um, when giving declined um, in the years following the 08 uh, housing and economic crisis. In times of crisis, black and brown folks are hired in increasing numbers, and in particular black women, hired into roles to help save the day, okay? And so what we're seeing in this moment right now Folks are scrambling to get an equity person on their team. They're scrambling to get a talent person that is um, a person of color, and in particular, a black woman in lots of organizations, scrambling to get someone who is different in that seat. But the question I have is, are you resourcing that individual both in time, in talent, and in treasure? So is, is it attached to the bottom line? Is it a strategic imperative That that person be successful because folks are going to get hired during this time. But oftentimes when the organization is at a deficit of so many other things, that to me is an automatic recipe for failure. And Mm -hmm. so it's a double edged sword that we're dealing with right now.
0: That is really interesting to know the history on that. Well, and then I want to get into policy a little bit because I know you do a lot with policy. Most nonprofit executives don't get excited about policy. I mean, right? That's not what gets them up in the morning. However, organizations' policies are so critical, right? They directly shape the long-term health of an organization, particularly, again, when it comes to racial equity and diversity and inclusion. What steps should nonprofit leaders take in order to improve their policies and become more effective, again, specifically with diversity and inclusion?
1: Absolutely. An audit to see your employee satisfaction surveys over the last couple of years. And for those of y'all listening who are like, employee who? (laughs) Now is a good time to work with someone to pull together an audit of your people. You want to understand, you want to take a temperature check of your organizational health, of the satisfaction, the happiness, the productivity, the success, the longevity of the people who are making the engine of your mission go in your organization. So that's first things first, which is why the audience- Okay,
0: you're stirring the pot here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am like, that's the first thing first. And then for those of you who do have employee engagement surveys, actually look at the data. Don't just show me the aggregate data for this year. I want you to look at your data year over year. I want you to pull it out by subsets. Yes, pull it down by gender. Yes, pull it down by race. If you were able to do it by staff level, which is tied to income, pull that data down again. So for those of us who are my ops folks who are listening in and my fundraisers, y'all already know that we've got to look at the data and the numbers. And so when you're thinking about policies, you have to start with your numbers. And so for me, easiest place to go, engagement. The next easiest place to go, drum roll, is looking at your financial policies when people get paid, how people get reimbursed, who is eligible for using the company card versus their own money, under what circumstances do people get to take advances, how do people know and understand what is available to them financially in order for them to be successful in their own family household? Are we making it possible for people to live, or are they barely above the line, for some of us, of the missions that we are aiming to serve? And so you've really got to dig in to the places in your policies that you know that you're most vulnerable.
0: That's really interesting. You talk about financial policies. What have you found? Why is that so important? Like what is the direct correlation to job satisfaction? Is it just the fact that if you don't get paid on time or if it's uh, maybe you don't have the opportunity to get a credit card, uh, that's the company's credit card, that it kind of sends the message you're not valued or you're not trusted? Maybe talk about that more.
1: It's it's also the direct, socioeconomic link between income, a person's disposable income and access, and their ability to be able to thrive outside of work. And so if you are a junior level or a mid-level employee, and frankly, some senior level employees, and let's say, I'll use myself as an example, let's say you are first generation, you have an immigrant family that you still send money back home to in a different country, or to get it, you're American here, American-born, and your family's from here, and you still are helping this auntie, this grandmother, this cousin through college, et cetera. You're helping pay for medical bills, et cetera. Your money is already accounted for almost to the penny outside of the work you're doing in the organization. So then when you're asked to do work on behalf of the organization and then use your own money to do it, you're making assumptions that I have credit, that I have enough disposable income, that I have savings, that my money is not accounted for someplace else. And that typically, not always, but it typically puts an outsized pressure on our professionals of color in the organization who might have come into the organization, as we know, around pay disparities. Let's make that clear. So that is happening already who might have different economic circumstances they're coming into, and that's not everybody, but there are a lot of folks, and particularly with our more junior professionals, and who have outside life circumstances that they're not going to talk about at work because it's embarrassing and because people judge us for it, right? And so those are some of the things that really stand out to me when we think about the financial aspect. And organizations are in a position through your policy creation and refinement to ease that burden – From your team members and level out the playing field on how your employees and your team members can operate day to day within your organization, regardless of their income.
0: So if you come into an organization and you realize hey you know your financial policies are not very strong you're assuming way too much what would be some of the most important things to do first so if a nonprofit leader is listening right now to this podcast and hears this and like huh okay so what should i do like what if i am you know realizing my financial policies are a little weak um i've not really put uh, a good plan into place in terms of giving raises at appropriate levels what would you say are the f- most important things that this person ought to do
1: Start where your employees have indicated the highest level of dissatisfaction, which goes back to my first point about your employee service. That's a good opportunity as an engagement tool to say, I see you, I'm listening, and I want to make some changes. A lot of uh, organizational leaders think, oh, my gosh, I have to pay people more money. We don't have it, blah, blah, blah. No, no. There are ways to operate within what you have. And one of them is to ask what people want. And so if you have reimbursement policies that are insane, change them. Those are simple things that are easy to do. If you have a policy that people have to pay for things out of pocket, change that. Maybe it might mean that there might be some more responsibility on one or two team members who have to do the approval process for the organizational credit card, et cetera, if you don't want to give everybody a credit card, for example. But taking the pressure off of employees to do your business with their money is really, really, really critical. And so that's something that I I want y'all to be thinking about. And so that's one of the ways I would jump right in there.
0: Very helpful. So job satisfaction surveys and just looking back over there is one of the key places you can start to figure out where your problem areas may be. And then you start moving from there.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you, and if you haven't done them, this is a time that you can say, team, I get it. I, we haven't, we've been so busy doing, (laughs) focusing on the mission because a lot of organizations are like. We're just, we just want to just do the work. And so, uh, policies, procedures, and practices in, in particular, they sort of morph out of just doing the day to day work, right? They become an, uh, an outsized expression of your organizational leadership, whatever that is. And so, as you want to make those shifts, you've got to invite in the input from the folks who are most affected by those day-to-day practices.
0: Okay, so as we move on to a macro level, what do you believe are the biggest challenges in general, you know, uh, on a large scale now, facing the nonprofit sector right now? And what is your advice to nonprofit leaders as to how to successfully navigate through them?
1: I think that we've been doing business the same way a long time, despite the fact that there are a new wave of thought leaders and consultants and professionals who are trying to bridge the gap between Um, practices and uh, tactics and strategies that work in other sectors to our sector. And I saw that most vividly right in the start of the pandemic when folks were trying to pivot, for example, in their fundraising or in moving folks from in office to at home and either the technology was not up to par or they did not have the systems in place to be able to pivot quickly. And so I think that's one of the big things that's plaguing us that no matter how many times we have gotten the the writing on the wall that we've got to be able to play catch up, it seems to be very hard for organizational leaders to actually do just that. Like we are stuck in our way, and then what ends up happening is that we're just deer in headlights, and 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 feel like stuck and frozen paralyzed. We can't move, and so that's one thing that I think is really big. The second thing is that there's just a lot of darn organizations, and I just wish. That sometimes whenever I see someone has launched a new organization and that I can immediately in my mind rattle off 10 organizations just like it, I wonder, did anybody do any research? And so what I would love to be able to see as, uh, in response to lots of really great ideas, lots of really great missions struggling is for more folks to collaborate, to sync up to join organizations, to be absorbed by organizations that maybe have better infrastructure or to put together and to be able to really try to solve problems differently and have better back-end operational systems that allow them to be able to grow. So that's one thing I see. This is a whole lot of organizations. And then the third thing is we have such a heavy reliance on private philanthropy, and that is our programs are driven by the funders and the funders' desires and whims, and so there's a whole thread of conversation we could do on that, and then our operations are predicated by how much money we get in that is not re- are restricted, and that our fundraisers are on the hook to raise money for the programs and the operations as opposed to being able to invite in transformative gifts into the organization to support the work, and it just becomes this chicken and egg that goes round and round and round and round, just chasing around in the yard, and so folks end up being flustered and confused and feeling that their body of work, their line of business is the one that is most critical, which ends up putting teams within organizations against each other. So those are the three things, and I'm sure there's tons more, but those are the three things that for me stand out as consistent themes that I have seen, particularly in the last 10 to 11 months.
0: It's really, you know, resonates a lot with what the various speakers I've had on this show before. So I would just say yes to all three of those. And maybe, again, a a broad question of if you were to take the collective temperature of the nonprofit sector right now, how are nonprofits doing in this COVID world we're living in in general? Are we heading down a, a kind of a dark, difficult time? Are you seeing nonprofits separate? As you kind of mentioned, maybe there's some that need to come together more or consolidate or certainly collaborate or do you see that the sector is really moving forward and moving upward? What's kind of your general collective temperature of the nonprofit sector?
1: Well, I'm an optimist. And so I'm gonna, <laughs> So I always think people are moving forward. Um, I think that they're going to be. I like
0: that optimism. That's good.
1: Yeah, because they're going to be organizations and organizational leaders that have a find a way or make a way kind of attitude about the way they work. And when they do, and those that do will survive. And not just survive, but it's not just having an attitude of survival, it's having an attitude of, what I would say, sur <laughs> Yeah, sur-thrival, it's not a of word, come on. And so, for me, it's a matter of having that perspective of what will it take for us to actually be a thriving organization, what are the decisions that we need to make now so that we are solvent and that we are able to invite in innovation, that we're able to actually make the kind of shifts that don't feel like knee-jerk. So I feel very hopeful that there are going to be a lot of organizations that are going to see this as an opportunity to finally do things differently, to finally think about how they treat their teams differently, how they execute their missions differently, how they invite in their donors differently, how they recruit and retain their board members differently, how they promote and advance their team members, how they approach equity differently. And so everybody can't solve everything, to be clear. But I do think that it presents an opportunity to just reassess the work because folks who are giving are reassessing their giving. And folks who are uh, professionals in our sector are reassessing if this is the right sector for them. So this is a really good time to sort of take a beat and to really start to do things differently. So I feel very optimistic about the direction that we're going in, as long as it does not go back to business as
0: usual. Well, I love your optimism, but it's constructive optimism, right? Yeah, I can't go back to the way we've been doing it. Uh, well said. Well, this has been fascinating. I mean, thank you for sharing your insights for, with us. Again, I encourage my um, listeners to check out all that you have to offer. How can people find out more about you and your work? Where would you send them?
1: Absolutely. So if you want to find out more about what I do, I encourage you to go to Kishana Co. Dot com, and you can find out about the management and leadership trainings that we do, the audits that we do for organizations, both cultural audits as well as organizational leadership assessments, um, about our fundraising boot camps that we do. Um, we have a good time, okay? We get our work done, but we have a really good time with our clients, and we are not for folks who are stuffy. And so if you're just trying to do the same old thing and check the box, don't bother. But if you are looking to do things differently, you're looking to kick up some dust and make really good changes that your organization will enjoy for years to come, then reach out to me on our website. And then also, if you are an everyday manager or a leader who's looking for more tactical skills on how to manage people better, then I would love for you to check out kishcamp.com. And that is my, um, you know, go away to camp at home, <laughs> my digital course for managers who are looking to manage differently and manage in a healthy way. And always, always connect to me on social media at Kashana Palmer. And so that's it. Those are my grades.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. Well, Kashana, thank you so much again for sharing your insights. I encourage all of you that are listening to check out all those different resources. You could tell she has a lot of energy and she has a lot of insights and great experience. And I think your dad did a really good job of inspiring you when it comes to leadership. So thank you again for taking the time to be on the show.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: We're excited to have Apollos as the sponsor of this nonprofit podcast. And what's unique about Apollos is that they are dedicated not only to providing you with the best tools, but also to offering free training from their in-house experts and CPAs. Right now, you can get access to a solid webinar on five essential financial reports for nonprofit leaders. To get access, go to nonprofit.apollos.com. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.